welcome everybody to episode 27 of the Greater European Talks. My name is Stefan Rapp and today joining us is Professor Roberto Poli from the University of Trento. Mr. Poli, nice to have you here. Professor Poli is an expert in the field of future studies. He serves as president of the Italian Association for Futurologists as he is also the Chair for Anticipatory Systems at the UNESCO. Besides that, joining me today it's Isabella Maviglia and Marisa De Shepers from Greener U, Venice-based startup dealing with future sustainable ways in tourism. Today we'd like to speak about a topic most of us might be concerned, future and future studies. As predictions are always difficult when it's about dealing with the future, Professor Pauli was so kind as to prepare a little lecture introducing into this often disregarded field of future studies. Therefore, dear listener, the first half an hour will be a little introduction into the world of future studies, the theoretical background, methodologies as outlooks. Afterwards, there will be a discussion between Professor Pauli, Greener U, and the Institute for Greater Europe. So we hope that you'll enjoy this podcast and have a great time listening about the future. Thanks for your attention and thanks for your time listening to the Institute for Greater Europe. I would like to present you some basic elements uh, of strategic foresight or future studies. The, the terms are different, but the basic contents uh, are uh, the same. And uh, I will start from why strategic foresight is more and more relevant in our days, in our period. And uh, hollow reason or the easy answer to why it is important to look at the future has to do with the fact that we live in a period in which there are many changes. You look around and you see that things change in all sectors. And this is unquestionably true. And there are consequences for that. One of the consequences uh, has to do with the rising level of uncertainty characterizing both lay people and high-level decision makers. So the fact that there are changes everywhere as a consequence, as, as a consequence the fact that people, I mean, they feel, uh, oh, I do not know anymore where I am. I do not know what I have to do, which kind of decisions. I have to take. Before going on, I would like to stress one element among a number, that uncertainty is not necessarily an enemy. And this is very important. Because think about a situation that is completely certain. Well, I won't love being there. Because a situation that is completely certain means that all the relevant decisions have already been taken. So there is no role to play. Some levels of uncertainty means that 
we can play our cards. We can try to do something. Of course, we can fail, but we can at least try to, to do whatever we deem relevant. So uncertainty is not necessarily an enemy. It becomes an enemy when the level of uncertainty is so high to work as an abstraction, when the level of uncertainty blocks our capacities of taking decisions. But if we see things in this way, we already have at least a hint about what should be done. We have to develop the skills, the habits, the attitudes that help us in maintaining our decision-making abilities, notwithstanding the fact that uncertainty is growing. Because there is no doubt about the further increasing of the levels of uncertainty because the situation will continue to change and many other things. So the first step is discovering what can be helpful in maintaining our decision-making capacities, notwithstanding rising levels of uncertainty. Because there are a number of aspects that are important. One aspect is the fact that, uh, let me express my idea by using a strange sentence. Information coming from the past is no more sufficient for telling us what we should do. But the strange sentence is information coming from the past. It means our experience. And our experience is something important, is something relevant to us, is what we have done, is what we are. So our experience is no more sufficient for informing us about the decisions we should take. But I used that strange sentence, information coming from the past, because it helps seeing what could be done, what should be done. If information coming from the past is no more sufficient, what we have to do is developing methods, ideas, frameworks, helping us to extract information from the future. Information from the past remains relevant for obvious reasons, because it has to do with our experience, for instance. And no one wishes to get rid of his or her experience for obvious reasons, I guess. But we have to augment the decision basis we use for taking decisions by exploring or by developing ways for extracting information from the future. So it is as if we in the present work with two sources of information, information coming from the past, information coming from the future, and we use both of them for taking decisions. Before continuing, there is another aspect that is important. I told you from the very beginning, we live in a period in which there are many different changes, admittedly true, but it's very hollow. Think for a while about 
what you know from history. Can you find any time in history without changes? Changes are normal, are the default case. So saying that changes, the amount of changes is what distinguishes our epoch means nothing. Means our epoch is exactly the same as any other epoch. So if there is something distinguishing, distinguishing this historical moment from other periods in history, there must be something else. And this something else has to do not so much with the fact that there are many changes around, but has to do with the fact that changes are faster and faster and faster and faster. It is the acceleration of changes that distinguishes this historical period from other historical periods. And it is the acceleration of changes that give troubles to people because people are no more able <clears throat> to maintain pace with uh, the velocity of changes. And that's why creates uncertainty. That's why it creates troubles in decision makers at all levels from the highest one to the most humble one. So acceleration eventually is the feature that distinguishes this moment in history from previous moments in history. And it's not something that uh, characterizes, uh, let's say the 10 or 20 or, or something like uh, past years. It's something that is ongoing since uh, the beginning of the capitalist uh, way of working. So it's something that has been active for almost 200 years. And now as it is something that has become so relevant to create troubles, to require people to develop new skills, new capacities, new habits in order to deal with the acceleration. So to summarize this first part, what I'm claiming is that information coming from the past is no more sufficient. We must devise ways for extracting information from the future. This is the reason behind future studies. Future studies were developed in the 50s and then in subsequent years exactly for uh, providing an answer to this question extracting information from the future. The problem is how, in which ways, which tools, which ideas can be used in order to achieve this result, in order to develop the skills, the capacities to do that. Because at first it looks like something strange, something unusual. How can I extract information from something that is not there? that has not happened. And most of our science is explicitly against this idea. 
Because if science is based on data, data for obvious reasons can arise only from the past. So we need a different idea of the science after all, which is something not trivial. We have to reinvent the ways in which we conduct science, not because data are irrelevant, data are obviously very relevant, but they cover only part of the game, only, so to say, the past-oriented component. We have to develop tools and ways of doing science able to cover the future-oriented component, which is, well, a pretty demanding task after all. But it is also an exciting one because it means we have to reinvent or reshape the ways in which science is conducted. And science, be sure, is an historical phenomenon. The science of Galilei was different from the science of Aristotle. And the science of Einstein and Weber was different from the science of Galilei. And the science of today is different from the science of Einstein and Weber and so on. And the science of tomorrow can be different again. So there is no real doubt, no real problem with that. Science is an historical endeavor. It develops in time. And unless one thinks that we are, we, we are at a plateau, we arrived at a plateau, so science arrived at such a level that it doesn't need to change anymore, difficult to believe, if science is going to change again, one possible development of science is the one I'm suggesting. Changing science from being a primarily past-oriented effort to become a primarily future-oriented effort, which is, well, which is something. I mean, there is some work to do in order to achieve that result. But leaving apart the issue of science, which is very rare for me, it is the most important after all. But nevertheless, leaving apart the issue of science, I would like to stress another aspect about what can be done. And there are quite a number of reasons after all. One aspect is to understand that not all changes are the same. Some changes are more important than others. This is what we call mega trends or mega changes. Some changes are so robust that they will influence the future, we say for sure. They are like the skeleton of the future. Many transformations, many changes are difficult to see in advance. But some of the changes are so deep and so relevant that we can see them from today because they have been active for a long time before and they promise to be active for a long time ahead. And here are some of them are mentioned, demographic changes. So the fact that we are going to move from, say, about 7.5 billion people on Earth 
to about 11.2 billion people on Earth for end of the century. This forecast is a United Nations forecast. So almost 4 billion people more. Well, that's something. You know, people have some needs. They have to eat. To eat. They have to have clothes, houses. They have to go to schools. I mean, 4 billion more means something. Or the aging of population. So demographic data are usually very relevant because they frame one dimension of the future. Geopolitics is obviously relevant. We all know that the competition for supremacy between China and the USA is open and it will likely continue for a long time and it will shape things in many uh, respects. The climate crisis is ongoing. I mean, there are quite a number of transformations that are so relevant that we have to, uh, to, I mean, to understand them very clearly because uh, they will shape the future. And there is something more as a matter of fact about these transformations. And uh, uh, the fact is that None of them, none of those listed are secondary. They are all important. And they are all unfolding in parallel. That's a problem. Because we do not have tools for answering in a successful way. It will be very nice, very easy to say, okay, let's address demographic changes first. When we have solved them, let's move to geopolitical changes. And when we have solved them, let's try to address climate crisis changes. Well, the world doesn't work this way. They work, they all, they are all growing together. So we need a different framework, different tools, a different way of working of our legacy systems in order for them to be able to address these issues. But then there is something more. The major changes I have mentioned, they interact one another. For instance, if there will be more people on Earth, we need more food. But in order to produce more food, we need more energy, and so on and so forth. So, so understanding mega trends is important, first level. Understanding the interactions among mega trends is even more important, second step. I leave apart all this. This is just a kind of background. What I would like to stress now is something possibly unexpected, because when we think about future studies or strategic foresight, it looks like a strange idea. Well, as a matter of fact, things are different in many respects. And things are different from high-level institutions. Here are three cases, but there are more, but just three cases to focus our ideas. You know the lady in the picture. And you know that apart from being a noble lady and having 
generated an enormous amount of <clears throat> sons and daughters uh, as is the president of the European Commission. And she has taken a couple of decisions when she became president of the commission. One is well known, and it is the vice presidency uh, to the Green Deal. All journals, all newspapers have, uh, have written about that. So we know that there is Mr. Franz Timmerman, who is the vice president of the European Commission, and he has the responsibility of the Green Deal. Okay, great. But there is another vice presidency decided by Ursula von der Leyen, and it is the vice presidency given to Maros Shevkovic, vice presidency to strategic foresight. So what I'm talking about, developing future tools, is something that the European Commission already does. There is a vice president that has the responsibility of helping the Commission to think ahead on long time windows. And the letter sent by Ursula von der Leyen to Maro Sekovic explicitly it's available on the internet, you can find it. Help the Commission to take decisions having in mind the long term transformations. Long term. So it's something officially recognized at the level of the European Commission. And there are a number of consequences after that. The OECD, you know that. Uh, last year, it has published a report. You see the cover of the report. It's a report of suggestions for governments in which it is said, use the, the existing tools of strategic foresight for uh, developing and implementing uh, policies. Again, strategic foresight or future studies, if you like, is something that is acknowledged and used at the level of major international institutions. Perhaps we people or most decision makers have not understood what's happening. They are lagging behind, dramatically lagging behind what's happening, what's already happening at the level of high level institutions. Or consider UNESCO. UNESCO last December, so a few months ago, has organized the first international summit on futures literacy. 8,000 people were involved in that summit worldwide. It was an incredible event. Futures literacy, as the literacy, as the expertise needed for the 21st century, not against traditional form of literacy. Obviously, people should continue to learn to read and write, no doubt about that. But that's no more sufficient because the accelerated rate of changes requires new tools and futures literacy for all in the same sense in which traditional literacy is for all is, this is the proposal by UNESCO, the new form of literacy that is needed in our period. So here we have three exemplifications of three major institutions that have already decided 
to use strategic foresight, futures studies, futures literacy. The terms are different, but the basic contents are not so different as part of their official strategy. That's something. In this case, international institutions are leading the rush. They are not lagging. We are lagging. We national and regional and local institutions, most of them, not all of them, obviously, are behind what major institutions are already doing. So it is important to understand this transformation, which has been, has been very poorly covered by newspapers and journals, because they, they have not understood what's happening. Something important is happening, and we have to call attention on that and provide people, groups, organizations, companies, institutions, the tools for doing the same. So there is an expertise that should be acquired because becoming a futurist is not something that can be done from one day to the next. It requires a frame of mind. It requires knowing the methods. It requires knowing how to use them and so on and so forth. So there is a real expertise that should be acquired. It takes time and efforts. Is not something obvious. And these three exemplifications, I, I gave you only very little information, only the basics. There is much more that should be uh, that could be uh, said about that. Uh, I mean, OECD has published dozens of documents on uh, this issue. I mentioned but one, and the same at the level of the European Commission, there is huge discussion, there are huge discussions about how to frame the policy of the Commission in order to develop a future-proof strategy. I mean, there are many other aspects, but at least the basics are clear uh, enough. So this is the frame that should be taken into consideration. Then there is much more that can be added and so, for instance, what does really mean developing strategic foresight? Which kind of expertise is needed? Why it is so difficult to work with the future? And it is something that is not uh, easy done, easily done. Because there are obstacles, there are bias. There are cognitive and social biases against the capacity of the developing the capacity to work with the future. So we have to understand the biases that block our understanding of the future in order, in order to over, overcome them. Then there are methods that should be learned and there are quite a number of them. So there is not one or two methods, there is an entire set of methods that uh, should be mastered in order to be able to conduct 
future exercises, and so on and so forth. So this is only the beginning, but it is, I guess, uh, an interesting beginning because uh, the road ahead has already been opened. It has been opened by great institutions. So we have to catch, uh, so to say, their speed to, to, to follow their, their steps in a sense. Note that they are perfect, far from that. But nevertheless, they have been the capacity and the courage to say, to claim explicitly, we need different tools. That's the major aspect. So what can be added? Well, one last aspect, I think it is relevant, and we can exchange ideas and have a little discussion. And it is understanding the difference between forecasting, foresight, and anticipation. That's a major issue. If ideas are not clear on these three aspects, all the rest ruins. What is forecasting? And which are the intrinsic limitations of forecasting? Forecasting is essentially a past-oriented activity. It is collection of data, for instance, about trends or historical uh, series, temporal series, and extrapolation from the data of the past towards the future, which is, I mean, it's a very serious activity. There are robust technical aspects, but there are also some elements, some assumptions we should know about in order to understand the intrinsic limitations of forecasting. Think about econometrics, for instance. What is econometrics? When governments say next year GDP will be, and they give a number. These extrapolations work reasonably well on the short time, on a short time window, let's say six months, one year, two years perhaps, and three years no one believes them. So the robust, robust methodology, extrapolating from the past towards the future for reasonably short periods. There is a second assumption characterizing forecasting. It is a very conservative activity because it sees the future as a continuation of the past, which in most cases is reasonable enough. But we know that there are changes, there are transformations, there are novelties, there are disruptions. In this case, forecasting modeling doesn't work. It's not part of, the, of its capacity. Forecasting modeling is good as soon as things doesn't change too much. What is foresight in this regard? Well, foresight is, so to say, the other side because it works primarily with long time windows, let's say 10, 20, 30 years. 
and it is more interested in changes, in transformations, in discontinuities than in continuities. So exactly the other way around. Foresight and the European Commission and OECD used explicitly the expression strategic foresight, not strategic forecasting. So they are saying we are not using the tools of statistics, which is important, obviously. Uh, Data are relevant as before. There is no doubt, but that's not enough because forecasting is too conservative, is not able to intercept changes to intercept transformations, disruptions, while we are most interested in them, in those, because because we would like to understand what may happen, the different ways in which things can change in order to prepare for that. And why looking and using long time windows, which may appear something uh, difficult and uh, uh, which is in partly true. Working with, there are two reasons for working with long time windows. The first one is that there are changes that are visible only if we adopt long time windows. And they are almost invisible when we work with short time windows. So the first reason is to better understand what may happen. Second, by working with long time window, we earn time. We have the time for trying to do something. Because if something, say, negative is going to unfold, well, we have time to prepare and eventually to diminish the severity of that change. But the same can be, to- can be said also for positive transformation. If something positive is unfolding and we see it long enough uh, in time, well, we can prepare. We can do something in order to be ready to exploit that transformation when it will be ready. So in both cases, for both positive and negative changes, having time gives us the possibility to prepare ourselves and to be ready to manage that change when it will become active. What is anticipation in this case? Well, both forecasting and foresight are models. They are scientific tools. They are ideas. There are ways of organizing information or exploring information. Anticipation is the translation into action, into decision-making of what we have seen through our forecasting and foresight models. So is the transformation into action because future studies is a deeply applied field. We are not working with the future because it is gray. Well, it is an, an, I mean, an exciting intellectual adventure, no doubt about that. But we are working for the future in order to take decisions. I'm not a writer. I'm not a movie maker. 
I'm not looking at the future for telling a history or telling a story to somebody. I'm looking at the future for taking decisions. So at some point, I need a framework translating my models, forecasting and foresight models into actions. And that's the role of anticipation. What I've said so far is only an entry point. It's only the beginning. There is obviously much more that can be uh, said, but I think that as a beginning may give you enough information for uh, uh, having a first idea and eventually read something more and develop a better understanding of, uh, of the field. If you like, you can read my book, Working with the Future, which provides uh, a slightly more uh, uh, advanced description of future studies and some of the applications, some of the methods. So it gives a bigger picture, a more complete picture of the field. But there are many others, obviously, so uh, that's only one of the possibilities. Okay, I will stop here and uh, uh, open the floor to questions, remarks, uh, or other aspects. Thanks a lot, uh, Professor Poli. And we can really see the passion and all the excitement in that field of future science. It's always very inspiring to think forehead all these different methods you mentioned. Reading your book, Working with the Future, what really catched me was this uh, sentence, I'm a failed sociologist. We're looking too much backwards. What was that moment in your scientific career when you said, I'd like to dedicate my research focus onto future science? When did you discover that field? And what was the reason attracting you getting deeper into it? Well, uh, it happened about... Uh... I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 years, about 20 years ago, more or less. It was at a conference in UK. It was a conference on time, on the on, yeah, future matters was the title of that conference. And I went to that conference. I had a paper presenting the ideas of a mathematical biologist called Robert Rosen. At that time, I knew nothing about future studies. I never met uh, that field. Uh, I never read uh, anything at all. So I was a uh, failed uh, sociology and a successful philosopher, I guess. Uh, and I was doing my work. Uh, at that conference were present a couple of futurists, uh, Ted Fuller, uh, Riel Miller, and others. And uh, what they were presenting struck me. Oh, that's what I was looking for. I. I, I I wasn't unaware, completely unaware of the existence of a field like future studies. So there was a real surprise. So when I come back home, I began reading something just to collect information. And, and I got more and more excited about what I discovered. I discovered also, also that future studies was lacking a real theoretical basis. I, I, I told myself, okay, that could be my contribution to the field. And uh, then I began offering uh, some lectures to my students just to see whether I was able to, I mean, 
to organize a meaningful lecture. And the students uh, loved a lot what they were saying and so on and so forth. Then uh, what began as single lecture became uh, a full-fledged course, then a compulsory course. Then I opened uh, the master in future uh, studies at Trent University, which is called the Social Foresight for a number of reasons. Uh, then I established uh, the startup uh, of University of Trento, Scopia, who is applying and working with companies and institutions in uh, developing, uh, helping them to develop future-proof uh, strategies, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, in time, my interest moved from my previous uh, uh, work on ontology and uh, related fields to uh, what is now a full-time activity in the field of future studies. So, it happened by chance. It was a real surprise. I knew nothing about future studies at that time. Now, everything I do has to do with future studies. So, I changed my skin, so to say. I became a different beast. And it's a lot of fun, I have to say. It's very exciting. Also working with companies or institutions is something, I mean, you have the feeling that you are contributing something real, something important for their development. And well, it's a good feeling. There is much to do, obviously, but nevertheless. I really like the point you mentioned about curiosity and getting into that field by chance. In your book, you mention education, it's always about preparing for the future. But currently, as you said in your lecture, there's so much acceleration of change. We don't really need, know what will be needed in the future. Why not make futures literacy part of education? How do you think could that be included in a curriculum, let's say in a school, at universities, at different fields, really am promoting that kind of curiosity and passion for the future you're promoting here? Yes, of course. Uh, one of the activities we develop uh, with Scopia is uh, future labs in the classroom. Uh, so we have... Uh, invented a framework for conducting a short lab dedicated to the future, even with, uh, uh, I mean, students as young as 11-year-old students. So very young, and uh, I mean, it's very successful. We have conducted labs with, I think, 2,500 students, something like that. Uh, so, I mean, can be done. It has already been done. Of course, there are, I would say, little experiments is not something that has been made institutional. It's not that all schools do the same. It is an activity that some schools, and we train teachers in order to give them the uh, the knowledge, the capacity to conduct a future lab in their own classroom. And there are quite a number of supporting activities, uh, uh, such as training, uh, monitoring the labs in order to see uh, whether things proceed uh, in a proper way, and so on and so forth. 
There are also, there is also a book on the future labs, it is in Italian, but you read Italian, so. And there is a paper in English on uh, future labs in, uh, in the classroom that you can read eventually. So there is something, documentation is still poor, but nevertheless, it is one experience that is ongoing and we hope that uh, it will become uh, stronger and stronger and more schools will adopt that. Uh, framework. So there are, I mean, things are changing slowly, perhaps too slowly, but they are changing. Especially that kind of change, it's something important, this kind of creative thinking. And one topic you mentioned was also sustainability, demographics. And today joining me, it's Isabella, who runs a startup in the field of sustainability. I suppose you also have a question regarding future science sustainability. Thank you so much for granting me the floor. My curiosity just, you know, flourished while hearing uh, Professor Poli speak. So um, there, there are so many questions that are popping up to my mind, but maybe I can just ask uh, uh, three concise questions. We have the Startup Greener EU. Um, which uh, has its mission to implement the Green Deal, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and the FARO Convention and other directives. So we are so excited uh, to have the chance to, to have this um, contact, and we want to thank uh, Stefan and uh, his organization for inviting us today. So, of course, uh, when studying cultural heritage and when you know going through museums and uh, we're, we're trying to educationalize the information and one of my biggest frustrations of course as a woman is that I, I have always only almost exclusively seen male examples in the creative sector so that's for me something that needs to be changed urgently. <laughs> that's your role. That's, that is indeed. So my, my, my three questions would be more, um, to what extent, of course, uh, women in, uh, and, and including the, her story as well, not just his story, is of course a priority. But what about Marinetti and the manifesto of um, uh, futurism? How is your research connected to, to that uh, publication? That would be my first question because a lot of scholars say that that's sort of the, the source of uh, futurism, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm not expert of the field. Uh, futurism, uh, I mean, uh, is used in different ways. Futurism within art history refers to Marinetti and the other members of the group, but has nothing to do with futurism in the way in which we use it. So we are not uh, uh, artists, we are decision makers or consultants helping decision makers to take better, possibly better decisions. Of course, the one of the big question marks uh, is whether art, uh, in one way or another, can be a tool for better devising futures? And the answer is yes. For instance, 
it is much, let's say this way, I would love living in a nice future, in a future that is uh, uh, aesthetically beautiful instead than in a future that is uh, ugly. Uh, so arts uh, in different ways can be tools, something can be used in order to help us to devise, to figure out uh, more realistic or better futures. But that, this has nothing to do with that specific form of art uh, that was embodied by Futurist, which was a very peculiar uh, movement in Italy and in Russia at the time. The second question, of course, regarding the Faro Convention and the role of cultural heritage preservation and valorization um, and re-implementation um, when we are actually talking about um, uh, many fields nowadays. So our role as Greener U, we've put it in our mission statement, it's important for us, um, uh, it's cultural heritage and uh, innovation through cultural heritage. Um, uh, so this, this kind of connection between, let's take historic maps, you know, the first uh -huh. map, and connect them through with digitalization, so with QR codes, and let's do something crazy. But uh, me being born in Berlin, I know some people have uh, started to talk about something new, like let's forget everything that was behind us and let's just start from from like without anything uh, weighing on our backs. So this would be like my second question. Well, uh, this is a long history. I would like to suggest you to read the work of Cornelius Holthoff. Right, I mean, type the Cornelius Holthoff with the age, Holthoff, who is a scholar in Sweden, working on cultural heritage and the future studies. So putting together the two components, he has published a number of deep and very thought-provoking papers and he has also recently published a couple of books that are worth reading. So he knows better than me and his works are, uh, I mean, are too provoking. Uh, he is able to frame cultural heritage in an entirely new way, which raises quite a number of interesting questions. And uh, the third question is, if you had something to tell a lot of young people, uh, what would it be? Like, let's get up and do something or just wait? Because me personally, listening to your story, you have inspired me so much to also uh, take into consideration uh, demographics and uh, statistics because um, I'm a very, you know, like a bottom-up approach person. I love being with many people. And sometimes it's very overwhelming, especially if you do a lot of that. So I think that's like part of becoming an adult is uh, like going on a meta level maybe and analyzing more statistics, which I haven't done yet. Uh, so this is something um, interesting to me, um, that which I will personally uh, study about, uh, like on, on to in, in maybe um, implement in the future. Well, depends on you. I mean, <laughs> obviously, uh, future studies provides 
a new conceptual framework because learning to see things from the future, so to say, learning to understand, to better understand possible futures. Possible futures meaning the different ways in which things can unfold. Because uh, uh, we do not work with the future. We work with futures. We do not know which future will become the real future because it depends on the decision of many people and I mean, from many different variables. So developing the capacity, the conceptual, so to say, the, 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 the theoretical capacity and the methodologies, I mean, the concrete way of working with the future is something new, is something that is worth uh, uh, investing some time and energy into. A bit of statistics may be helpful mm, for obvious reasons. Uh, I mean, depends on uh, sensibility, capacities and, uh, uh, and wishes. I mean, what you would like to become uh, in time. So you may work more on, say, forecasting issues, which is something, or more on foresight issues, which is something else, or more on anticipation-based issues, which again, something different. So my suggestion is to know a bit of all three in order to, I mean, to understand the framework. Then, I mean, then, I mean, everyone is free to, to develop what is close, uh, closest, closer to his or her health and what also is closer to the abilities because people have different capacities. And so it is important to develop uh, the aspects that one feel more confident uh, with. Very, very, very insightful. Thank you so much, Professor Poli. Yes, I would like to grant the floor uh, back to Stefan. And if Marisa has some uh, questions uh, or some curiosities, that would also be interesting. So Stefan, the floor is yours. Thank you. It's just always fascinating and a real pleasure to listening. You, you really get inspired thinking about the future. And now thinking a little bit of Marisa, please, um, I'd like to grant you the floor as well. Thank you, Stefan. Um, so maybe for a little bit of context, I'm studying a master in tourism and sustainability in Sweden at the moment, and I'm doing an internship at Greenery U with Isabella. So I've been recently reading up a lot about the sustainable development goals, about the Green Deal and so on. And I've immersed myself a little bit in like the whole tourism and futures of like the future of tourism is very hot topic at the moment with COVID and everything. So um, I have kind of two questions for you, a bigger one and a very small one. Um, the first one is about the sustainable development goals. You mentioned that um, it is in those um, more international institutions that the future studies are more um, included already. And I wonder if you know if they were taken into account when the sustainable development goals were developed, um, because I feel like they're the, the successors of the Millennium Goals and those were not like none of them or only one of them was actually uh, they actually got to. 
So I feel a bit skeptic about where they're going to get with the sustainable development goals. And so I was wondering, are they um, past-based or future-based and how can we make them more future-based? That's my bigger question. And then the second one is just like, is there already some research or someone who, who works around uh, tourism and future studies? Because you mentioned someone who works around cultural heritage and future studies. So it would be super interesting to read up more on that. Okay, um, as to the, the, the 2030 agenda, I mean, there are many things that need to be said. Just to cut short, uh, when I was uh, asked to, to guide uh, the provincial strategy for sustainability uh, in Trento, the first step I done was to uh, move uh, the time frame to 2040, because 2030 is too, too early, too close. Uh, and uh, 2030 uh, will, uh, uh, well, I mean, most goals won't be achieved for that time, at least in most part of, of, of the world. Uh, so moving to 2040 has two uh, reasons. One was that 2030 at that point, uh, became a step along many other steps. So if the goal is not achieved, okay, that's it. But there are, I mean, we can do something more because it's not the end of the game. First aspect. Second aspect, by using 2040 as the reference point, I was able to work with decision makers, helping them to get rid of the uh, constraints of the present. Because 2040 is far enough to allow yourself to imagine a different situation, so different laws, different norms, a different way of doing, a different organization, this kind of things. And this, uh, for public officials, was very important. Because if you worked with too close a window, you do not believe that you will be able to implement serious and robust enough changes because you know that there will be many obstacles and many people against. And If you work with a long enough time window, you can free your imagination, see something different. And then from that point in which you imagine to have achieved your goal, you make step back. So from 2040 to 2035, to 2030, to 2025, to today. And then you have a kind of strategy from that point of view. But you start from the end point, not from the present situation. From the end point and an end point that is seen as very different <clears throat> from today's. So that's uh, one, uh, one way of framing the situation. That gives people uh, the freedom to imagine a, diverse, a, a different situation, a situation that uh, has been able to achieve at least some of the, uh, of the goals. And it was very successful, I have to say, because for most public officials, especially at the highest level, that was, liber that was really a, a, a kind of, uh, I mean, a liberating game. I mean, 
they felt able to think differently and to get rid of the uh, present constraints. Otherwise, uh, there won't have been any uh, possibility. As to the second question, yes, there are quite a few people working on future studies and uh, uh, tourism. There is also a journal dedicated on that. Uh, if you uh, type uh, on Google, you will find uh, something. I, I do not have in mind any specific guy <clears throat> I could suggest. Differently from the case of Cornelius Holtorf. Uh, but surely there are people uh, that have done quite uh, serious work from that point of view. Uh, eventually, if uh, something came to my mind, I can drop a line to Stefan and eventually uh, he will. Uh, I have to think a little, but no name pops up at the moment. But surely there are, there are quite a few people working on that issue, no, no, no doubt. All right, thank you so much. That was super interesting. <laughs> Thanks okay. so much for all the questions. Maybe we, as we could listen hours to you thinking about the future, but the future is always a process yet to come. So maybe to round up a little bit some outlook, I'd summarize two questions. First of all, you mentioned the COVID. Currently, we are living in a time where real planning seems something strange. When you think last time, the thing that was probably the most useless gift was a planner for 2020, as nothing really happened as it was supposed to be. So what kind of conclusions from the these rather strange times can be drawn for future studies. And maybe based on that, what are maybe the features or the skills regarding futures literacy we should develop further in the future to deal with all the changes ahead? Well, uh, I think there are two basic ways um, of for facing uh, our situation. One is the attitude of those claiming, okay, we are in a period of crisis, let's address the crisis, and then we will think about the rest afterwards. <clears throat> I think this is a very dangerous attitude. Because, of course, we have to face the crisis, we have to address the present issues. Well, that's obvious. But at the same time, we have to use this moment for preparing ourselves for the other changes that are growing. Because they will arrive. Never, I mean, there is no doubt about that. Other changes will arrive. So the correct attitude is dealing with present issues, obviously, but at the same time, preparing ourselves, our institutions, our organizations, our companies, to the other changes that are growing. That's what we do. So the fact that there may be a little time free, at least for some of us in this period, that's perfect for acquiring the tools for being able to manage the other forthcoming changes. That's for sure. And I forgot your second question. The second question was dealing a little bit with this field of COVID where nothing can be really planned. And do you see there's also a chance for future science as you're about dealing with scenarios, different futures that might come up? Might this be also something like um, a rich and valuable time for future thinking? 
Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I believe that uh, uh, there, there will there, there will be, uh, I mean, uh, greater developments in the field. Uh, I mean, I'm working that direction. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, what I would suggest is uh, to understand that there are many methods. So scenarios is but one method, but there are different ways of developing scenarios. I mean, the intuitive logic kind of scenarios, very different from the Manoa way of doing scenarios, which is very different from the French uh, tradition of the perspective and so on and so forth. So there are different ways of building up scenarios. That's the first step. Second step, there are other methods. I mean, causal layered analysis, uh, three horizons, backcasting, uh, and so on and so forth. So, and the, the, the real issue is to understand that the various methods uh, are more or less helpful according to the questions that arise. So, one has to use the right method for the right question, and that requires some ability and some competence. But the first step is knowing that the set of tools is rich. There are quite a number of tools, and many other can be eventually will eventually be developed in the future. But already now, there are quite a number of tools, and some of them are very easy. They can be performed say, in two hours, like. Uh, the, the, the will of the future or the future will. Others may require six months work, like scenarios uh, developed in at least some of the, of the ways in which they can be developed. So, uh, of course, quick tools arrive at some point, some levels of depth. Uh, tools that require much more work, they can be able to dig deeper into the issues. But well, I mean, there are different tools. That's the most important aspect. And a professional in the field should know, if not all, at least most of them, because they, and when we look at the future, it is always advisable to use more than one method, because it is like, looking at something from different perspectives. So you see more in the end. So you have a more complete vision of the situation, and then your strategy can be much more uh, robust in that sense. Okay. That's great. So we thank you a lot for this great voyage into the future, and it really makes us curious to discover that world a lot more. So thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot for all your great insights. We're very honored to have you here. And probably what rounds this up the best is wishing you all the best for the future. So grazie mille a Trento. Thank you to you all.